This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster, and this is the All Access Star Trek Podcast. This week, we are going to be reviewing the Star Trek Discovery episode Anomaly. But first, we have some big news for all, well, not all, for many of the people who've been very upset that they're not getting the new episodes of Star Trek Discovery. So as you remember last week, there was the surprising news that Viacom CBS had decided to buy back the rights to Star Trek Discovery, including season four, and therefore wouldn't show up last week on Netflix. It was a last minute decision that made sense corporately, but it was just bad timing and the delay until 2022 made it even worse. There was a lot of bad press from this. And so this week, Viacom CBS said, okay, we get it. So during the transition from this year to next year, they're going to do everything they can to get Star Trek Discovery Season 4 out to international fans, primarily through two means. Paramount Plus actually does exist in a number of countries around the world, um, specifically the Nordic countries and Latin America and Australia. So on Friday, the 26th of November... The first two episodes are going to arrive on Paramount Plus. So if Paramount Plus exists where you live now, you could start watching season four this week. They're also offering a 50% off promotion for the first three months. If you are in one of those places, just use the code Star Trek. Uh, so that's pretty good news. And I, I, I'm surprised that wasn't part of the deal last week because, you know, Paramount yeah. Plus existed you know, it was weird they were holding back until they launched it in Europe, but, you know, whatever. They fixed that. But the, the good news, speaking of Europe, is that there is no Paramount Plus now, so Viacom CBS also owns something called Pluto TV. And you may not have heard about it. It is a free live streaming service, so it's different than Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and Netflix. It's not an on-demand service for the most part. It is a live TV thing where it's ad supported. It's pretty big in the USA. Um, they've also been rolling it out around the world. So in a few European countries, specifically Austria, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom, season four will start streaming on Pluto TV this week um, at 9 p.m. on the Sci-Fi Channel. That's the Pluto Sci-Fi Channel, not the Sci-Fi Channel. Right. And it'll run at 9 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So Pluto is it's replicating old TV, kind of, in that, you know, you have to tune in at a specific time. And this will start Friday, November 26th with the first couple episodes. And then every week it will be the same thing. So at 9 p.m., Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, Star Trek Discovery on Pluto TV. And it's a free streaming platform. So... That's good news for Europeans. Just find Pluto.tv. Now, there's one other place, which is, and we don't have the full list of countries, but we know in the UK, Germany, France, Russia, and South Korea, at least, uh, they're going to make season four available as an online digital purchase via wherever you get your digital, you know, so wherever you can buy a season of whatever TV show. It'll be there in your local countries. And that'll be starting on, again, Friday, November 26th. So they are listening. They are trying. It still doesn't cover everywhere. For example, Ireland is not in the list currently, um, although that will be part of the Paramount Plus launch in early 2022. We have no news on Africa and Asia, which, you know, we're still not part of the announcement last week. So... 
um, except for South Korea. So hopefully Japan and China and India, you know, can also buy the season, but we can't confirm that yet. So for those of you who are listening to our podcast um, and are still not getting discovery, we will always, we put uh, on our actual post for the podcast, we put the time that the review starts and we will save our discovery related news to talk about until we're right about to go into the review so that you guys can still listen to the news if you're trying to avoid spoilers for Star Trek Discovery because it's still not where you are. Reflecting on all of this, there, there's kind of two ways to look at this. One is like, how could they have not known the kind of reaction they were going to get last week? <laughs> uh, so it's good that they're listening and that they quickly put in a plan. So, you know, and they put out an announcement saying, we're listening. We get it. We love Star Trek. We love the fans. So all the complaints and, you know, the articles around the world were not falling on deaf ears. So that's great. This kind of confirms that what happened last week was very last minute. The negotiations essentially weren't working the way they wanted. They exercised some kind of clause. They bought out Netflix and they just announced that. And they did this, you know, because this is obviously plan B. And they did, you know, they just, you know, it's complicated to set up all these distribution things. And they just weren't ready you know, but yeah. uh, we're already seeing some of the cast and crew who didn't know last week and were just as caught off guard saying, you know, we're glad they listened. We let them know. So um, there were, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of serious emails running around the, the uh, Viacom CBS last week from pretty, oh, yeah. bi- pretty important people who were kind of pissed off as much as the fans were. Right. So that's why they sprang into action to at least do what they could to get things started. So now, if you're in Europe or Latin America especially, you could listen to this whole podcast and (laughs) uh, not worry about spoilers. So congratulations. Yeah, isn't that the most important part of this whole fiasco? And for the rest of you, we're sorry. We really are. We're sorry. We're going to soldier on. Yes. Do we have any other news this week? We We do. We have some exciting news from the world of Star Trek Picard. Some news we've actually been waiting on. Has to do with Whoopi Goldberg. Well, it's kind of funny. This is something we thought we knew in 2020, right? Because it was publicly announced? Well, it was never. (laughs) It depends on how. It depends on the definition of the word announced. But I mean, you know, obviously Patrick Stewart in like January, you know, when they were promoting season one went on The View and he hugged Whoopi and he invited her to be part of season two. It was kind of a big deal. And and later, Michael Chabon, who is still a writer on the show, um, talked about how he was working on scenes for Guinan. And then people just stopped talking about Guinan through the rest of 2020. And we know they were doing rewrites and she's not been part of any of the promotions. She's never been confirmed or discussed. I mean, even John Delancey, who kept on blabbing about everything, including Brent Spiner, never mentioned Whoopi. You asked Akiva directly about it. Right. And and that was like in September. And he, he literally just stood there and <laughs> stared at me like I, you know, with this weird look on his face. Like he didn't have a plan for how he was going to answer that question if he was asked, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> So it was at least possible, you know, they had moved away from the idea of bringing Guinan into season two. But thankfully, Michelle Hurd has saved us from this mystery. With her own cameo blabbing. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she basically start, just started talking about working with Whoopi. I mean, no details on exactly what they're doing with Whoopi, of course. 
but it's a total confirmation that Whoopi Goldberg is part of the season and she's going to work with, you know, so we'll see Rafi and Guinan together, presumably. Which I'm very excited about. I'm very excited about this because I love both actresses a lot and I can't wait to see, wait to see them together. And Michelle Hurd was pretty excited about it too, saying, you know, Whoopi is the bomb. She's so cool. And she says, she's just cool. She is just Whoopi, which I tend to agree with. A couple questions. What? Why are they being secretive? I don't know. Well, you know, we there's a lot of <laughs> secretive stuff always when it comes to the new Trek shows. But like even Delancey never mentioned it's it's as if there's something because Delancey was just blabbing every week on Cameo about all sorts of stuff, but never mentions Whoopi. It feels like there was some kind of don't talk about Whoopi, although Michelle maybe didn't get that memo. I, I don't know. It could be conspiratorial, but they, they, I, th- I think they want it to be a surprise when she shows up. Yeah, I think the most telling part of that is that interview that you did with Akiva. To me, that's just, he wasn't going to say, oh, no, it's not happening. He he just really didn't want to say anything about it. And I assume at that point they had not discussed strategies. I wonder how far they're going to take this. Like, will she not even be in the final? I assume there's going to be one more trailer before the premiere in February. I mean, it may not be a correct assumption because they've already put out two and a half trailers. But they, I think you're right that they would put something out closer to the premiere, something new. And maybe they'd want her involved in the publicity for the show. You'd think. The bigger question is what role would Guinan play? And I, I could see this falling into two buckets and they're not mutually exclusive. One is Guinan the, I could tell what's going on in the funky timelines. Right. So you could imagine Picard and the gang show up in fascist 24th century and um, Guinan shows up and says, hey, you know, I know who you really are. And that's interesting because it could go either way where she could be their friend or be their enemy. Well, I don't see how they could. I mean, how sh- how would she be their enemy? She's not going to be fascist Guinan. Well, that is one of the other options is that they could encounter her and she is weird fascist Guinan. Well, I guess, but then that kind of goes against the whole, well, I hope they don't do this. That kind of goes against the whole Guinan consent timelines, et cetera. Right. I, I imagine it's, you know, their old pal Guinan. She doesn't have all the pieces together because she could just kind of sense something's wrong. You know, she couldn't tell you what she had, at, you know, for lunch last week in the prime timeline, but she knows something's up. And, <laughs> you know, but maybe she's the one that points them to the Borg queen. Right. Because she knows what's happening. She's like, you know, hey, you know, by the way, we've got a board queen stowed away if you want one. <laughs> Don't forget to feed and water her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, the other possible Guinan is the Guinan as enemy of Q, Guinan. Right, which does make it odd that John Delancey didn't mention her at all. It makes you wonder. Because that means either they said to him, you can't say anything about it, or he didn't have scenes with her, which seems like a weird choice. A very weird choice. Because yeah. they had it, because we want to know, what is the deal with Guinan Q? Does, is Guinan have special powers? Can she defend herself from a Q? You know, she does that weird thing with her hands. You know, is there something happening here? And yeah, why? And what, is, what is their history? Because they clearly knew each other already. To just ignore that. And and these guys, the people working, especially the showrunner now, Terry Metalis, 
technically co-showrunner, but he's the real deal. He knows all this history. Um, he's a huge Star Trek fan, a huge time travel guy, obviously. I, I just can't see how he would ignore that whole side of her. I, I So I think there's probably elements of both going on. You know, the question is, is she just in and out one episode, you know, or, you know, does she travel back in time with them? I mean, the craziest idea is there's a 21st century Guinan because Guinan lives for a long, long time. Obviously mm-hmm. she was, she was in the episode times arrow, right. In the 19th century. Was that mm-hmm. what the, so, but they would have to do a lot of de-aging and you no, know, but they could do that as well. You know, that's the thing. Like they could do all sorts of Guinan. So I'm excited about this in general though. Yeah, and there are a lot of different options for how she could appear. So it's making me much uh, more excited for the new season. Now, the big question about Whoopi Goldberg appearing as Guinan on Picard is, what kind of a hat is she going to have? Or is she going to have one at all? I mean, you know, the hats are canon. And uh, it's, you kind of, I mean, although she didn't have a crazy hat when we saw her in the 19th century, when she is Whoopi, she has a crazy hat. She had one in Nemesis. I think the bigger, the better with the hat. Yes. I'm going to be very disappointed if there isn't a great big bump people in the face with it as you walk by hat. <laughs> well, of course, if if we're seeing her in the fascist era, we need a kind of giant fascist hat. The hat yes. Has to be. It's big <laughs> and evil. <laughs> I can't wait. And the only other thing that Heard said about season two, she said it's very different and that there's a very challenging ride for Rafi. Whatever that means. Yeah. I mean, she had a challenging ride in season one also, and I would expect nothing less from that complex character. So now we have a little sort of Picard adjacent news, um, which is a nice one for all Star Trek fans to read about, which is that Mike and Denise Akuda are being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Art Directors Guild, which is great. These two have been part of Star Trek for a very long time, as well as many other shows. Um, And they're being honored at an award ceremony in Los Angeles uh, in March. And both of them, as we reported a few weeks back, are working on Star Trek Picard. And the showrunner is still sending out images. He sent one out this week, you know, showing the door to the nacelles room, which is clearly inspired by Akuda classic design. So you can see why they want the Akudas on the show, especially for season three. Although I think they were also involved with season two a bit as well. And, and Mike and Denise have been working since their time on enterprise, not just in the original series remastering project. They were on the West wing. They were on, um, for all mankind. Right. I mean, they just went, I mean, I think it was like literally one week they were on for all mankind. It wraps up and then they jump over to Picard. Yeah. So they've been busy. It's a lifetime achievement award, but they're not done. Right. (laughs) By the way, this is not the first Star Trek Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, Herman Zimmerman has won this, and more recently, John Eves, actually. The Art Directors Guild is into Star Trek, for sure. Yeah, well, they should be. I mean, it's it's always pretty gorgeous. Yeah. So this is very appropriate. And, it's not, and these two are also such a great part of the Star Trek fan community. They're always happy to engage with people, answer questions about specific designs and moments from the shows that they worked on. So this is exciting. I think a lot of fans will be sharing in their enthusiasm. 
they're the best, really. I mean, I've met them a number of times, and they're just so lovely. And their books, all you know, because the, their other huge contribution is to Star Trek nonfiction, all the reference books they've done. There's just so many of them. Yeah, and I interviewed them when they did the um, For the Vault. And they were so warm and friendly and full of information and still utterly full of enthusiasm for every aspect of the project and what they were working on. Let's switch to another Paramount Plus project that's pretty exciting, but it's kind of under the radar. And that is Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition is being remastered in 4K and is going to premiere on Paramount Plus in 2022. And the the people behind this project have been wanting to do it for a long time. Robert Wise worked on the Director's Edition for DVD, but it's not easy to just turn that into... HD because you basically have to do it all over again because of all the new effects they created. And so there was a little update on the Star Trek website from the team behind this. And it showed them working on it on this in the editing bays and there were some great pictures, but there were some hints that they aren't just going to take what was done for DVD and essentially turn that into 4K HDR. They're going to make a few little extra tweaks, I think, along the way, which is either controversial or exciting, depending on your point of view. <laughs> so we have on the site, we have some details about that, along with photos to to show you exactly what we're talking about. Knowing these guys, Darren Doctorman, especially, they're not in any way going to do a George Lucas and just start throwing stuff in there just to do it. <laughs> Everything they do will likely be something that Robert Wise they believe in their heart wanted, you know, either that couldn't be done, you know, because of the technology or the time, but it'll probably in the end still look like something that could have been made in 1979 if they just gave him all the money and the time that he could have wanted. Right. Very exciting about this project. We will be giving it full coverage. Brian Drew and Matt Wright from trekmovie.com are, you know, from, and from the shuttle pod are, motion picture super fans and they've been all over this thing so we'll be giving full coverage but we still don't have a release date i i feel like they could spot the changes even if they if they're just sitting and watching it i think they know that like i love that movie but they know it so well that i feel like shot for shot they could be like oh yeah that wasn't there you know i think they'll they've got good eyes those two for sure there's another thing, because last week we kind of didn't do news. There was something that was reported a little over a week ago, and that is that there's a Paramount theme park being built in China that has just kind of taken a big step forward. And this is in Kunming, which is in the Yunnan province, and the government there just announced that they are funding this huge project where Paramount theme park is going to be part of that, and part of that... Paramount theme park is like five themed sections uh, will be a final frontier section. So it'll essentially be like Tomorrowland, except it'll be all Star Trek stuff, you know, various attractions and shops and the Star Trek restaurant and the whole, whole nine yards. And they're looking to target June of 2024 as an opening date. So there's a few things to say about this. One is, you know, we've heard all this before. In the last decade or so, there's been all sorts of projects. There was one in Jordan. There was one in Spain where they announced these big Paramount theme park projects and then funding or regulation or something gets in the way and it never happens. 
I think this one has a better chance to happening because in China, they have this ability to just put projects forward and, you know, cut through the red tape, as it were, um, especially once the government's behind it, which it is. Because essentially, this the whole point of this is to draw visitors to this region. And it's it's going to be on a lake. It's a really beautiful spot. And I think this one actually could happen. Yeah, they got $8 billion in funding for the whole development that will include the Paramount Resort. You know, people are like, well, you know, are the Chinese in love with Star Trek? No, like, like I was saying, this is a, you know, you're going to walk around a theme park and you're going to be in a future section. And, you know, the fact that it's all Star Trek themed may or may not be noticeable to, you know, to the tourists, but it's obvious it's just sci-fi stuff, you know, and you, know, you don't need to love Star Trek to love essentially a Tomorrowland. But I think Star Trek fans will be very excited to see all this stuff. The other thing people are saying is, you know, why is Paramount doing this? Well, you know, Viacom CBS, you know, going back to Viacom, they and CBS, they sold off their parks division uh, like in 2006. So they are just into the business of licensing their intellectual property to developers and governments who want to build theme parks. So they they're all for that. And they've been involved in all these projects that haven't happened. But there's no one there saying, let's build a theme park in China. They wait for someone from China to say, can we build a theme park? Can we use Paramount assets? Like, you know, there's going to be a Top Gun ride and, you know, all that stuff. So it's not just about Star Trek. It's about all of the intellectual property, you know, and they say, yeah, sure. You know, give us the money and we'll work with you to develop the theme park. So this isn't really coming, you know, because everyone's like, why don't they just build a Paramount theme park in Orlando? You know, and I'm sure Viacom CBS would be ecstatic for someone to pony up, right. you know, fifty <laughs> billion dollars in Orlando to build a the Paramount theme park, but no one's done that. <laughs> so you know, it's it's not you know they're not not doing something in America. They you know there are people there who would like to see things happen in the U.S. There is one Star Trek attraction at a movie park in Germany, you know, so they want these things to happen, but. They're still waiting for a big one. Another one that looks like it's going to happen is going to be in London. It's called, a few years ago on the site, we had posted all these great pictures. There was going to be a Paramount Resort in London, very much like what we're talking about in China with different areas, including a Star Trek area. Then Paramount pulled out of that project. Then they went back in, but in a kind of subtle way where it's not going to be all Paramount, but there will be some Paramount stuff there. But it needs to be British themed. That's kind of the new thing of this London resort. So it's unclear whether they're going to figure out a way to British eyes an element of Star Trek. But you know, I mean, why not a you know Scotty's Wild Ride or something? You know, I'm I'm, I'm sure they could figure something out. Yeah, I'm sure um, they could. And London's easier to get to for me, so let's hope. <laughs> it would be nice to see you know because Star Trek, you know, the experience was great and. There used to be Paramount Parks that had like, you know, a board roller coaster and Star Trek characters walking around in the 90s and the early 2000s. So it'd be nice to get back, you know, and going way back at Universal Studios, they had a on both coasts, there were Star Trek themed things. So this is one element of Star Trek that just has been essentially dormant for the last 16 years. And it'd be nice to add this element back into the franchise absolutely and not just in china because i don't know if i'm going to fly to china just to see yeah star trek 
future land myself. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, hopefully while you're there, you'll go see other parts of China too. But yeah. <laughs> of course. Of <laughs> just course. Go in. I'm just going for the Star Trek thing. That's it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you look at the Star Wars stuff happening at Disney parks and they're just amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah, I was gonna so- like, I'm so jealous because it looks, I mean, all that stuff looks fun. I'd love to go to the Star Wars stuff, but it does make me a little bit jealous. Like, where's my Star Trek park? Come on. You know, even just a Star Trek, you know, attraction inside another theme park in the USA would be a big win, you know, like at Universal, which they've done before or something like that. So, you know, baby steps, but hopefully something like that happens soon. Do you think any of that is tied to the success or failure of the movies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the themes of the earlier, you know, no pun intended, stuff was everything was really very Kelvin-y, very movie-oriented, because that's more mass market. Yeah, it's more, it has a, a bigger global reach, for sure. Yeah, I think if they get the movies back, it'll be easier for them to sell Universal or whoever on a Trek-themed attraction for, right. you know, one of their theme parks in the USA. So, fingers crossed, I guess. We'll see how yeah. it goes. <laughs> Christmas 2023, apparently. <laughs> the next big Star Trek movie. Well, we'll see. But, yeah, let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think that's all the news. So here's our discovery warning for people who can't get it. We are now about to launch into our review of Star Trek Discovery episode 402, Anomaly. Which is, yes, it's a reuse of an episode title. They're recycling. It's a, they've run out of episode titles. It's, they've had <laughs> eight, 800 episodes and they're just going to start reusing them, I think. At, that's also a word. Out. That's a word that I learned from watching Star Trek as a kid. And then I started using it a lot. But it, to me, it's a very Star Trek word. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I'll start off. I, I, I very much liked this episode. Uh, I, I'm a fan of the the co-writer, Anne Cafell Saunders, who joined in the previous season. She wrote Sukal. And what I think she's really good at is telling a Star Trek story, but weaving in so much character development and exploration into the action well. I mean, the season premiere was doing a lot of setup, you know, it's your typical Kurtzman, you know, and paradise episode where they're, you know, doing a lot of setup, a lot of exposition and some running and lots of running, (laughs) running explosions. It was exciting. Queuing up a lot of character stuff for sure. With a huge focus on Michael, this one had a lot of great character stuff, especially Book and Stamets. It was kind of a, in a way, an old-fashioned Next Generation era thing where they, you know, they give a nice focus on a character, in this case, two characters, I feel. So this is a Book and Stamets episode, really. Uh, I thought there were a lot of different pairings that were very striking in this one. I had a funny experience watching this one because the first time I watched it, I didn't like it, and I think I was just in some kind of a weird funky mood because when I watched (laughs) it again I was like oh my god like why all the things that I thought I hadn't liked about it I was sort of wrong that those things were even in there it was sort of weird and when I watched it again I noticed exactly what you said which is that all the character stuff was woven into all the actions so that they didn't have to stop things down to make them happen and I also thought it tied in really nicely with a lot of the interviews that the 
that the actors and producers gave before the show premiered was about this uncertainty. And that seemed like an odd sort of theme. And now I feel like, oh, no, it's a great theme. I understand why the uncertainty is going to be such a big deal to everybody and and really put them under a tremendous amount of stress as they try to figure out something that apparently they can't figure out. Star Trek is best when it's about something. This episode yeah. was about something. It really was. It was about... Yeah, well, it was about a lot of things, but certainly that theme of uncertainty came through. It was about grief, survivor's guilt, change, and there was a clear, very clear, and you know they've already said this allegory to the pandemic. This was written in 2020. You know, in a way, this episode was March 2020, right? Yeah. The, this was the episode where the the galaxy goes kind of like we all did in March 2020. Like the previous episode was like in those early 2020 where you were hearing about COVID, you didn't know how big of a deal it was. This was the you know March where like oh my god, this is bad. This is really bad, and this is going to affect all of us. Right, and there were a few pointed things that I think really drove that home. Like when they're having their big meeting about it at the beginning. Um, and Tarina from Navarre is there, even though she's not part of the Federation. And she says things like, we need to prepare for some for civil unrest because it'll make people afraid. And then Saru says this very telling thing. He says, openness and a unified strategy will be critical, which, of course, we don't have net. We didn't have for the pandemic. We didn't have openness. We didn't have a unified strategy. We had lots and lots of politics. Because again, getting to March where this isn't going to be isolated. We can't just say this is a problem in China. This is a problem for the world. Right. Um, and it doesn't know borders. It doesn't know red versus blue. It's going to get everyone. And we don't, you know, and, and this this was really nailed at the end of the episode. We really don't understand it. <laughs> We're, yeah, and- no, that was the, imp- I mean, that's such a key part of it. And that's also why it's such a good parallel to what's going on is because there is so much that we just, we didn't, I mean, now we understand a lot more about the pandemic, but we really didn't know what was coming and, and how to predict what would happen. And even now I think we're not super able to predict what would happen. So it'll be interesting to see where this all goes. Yeah. You know, the question is, can you stop it at all? And I can't help but wonder when they talked about the reason that they wanted to predict where it's going is to warn people, are they going to have trouble communicating to people just how serious this danger is? That might end up being a big plot point. And what I really like about this is that they didn't pick an illness, you know, to make to make the analogy. They picked <laughs> right, something. Right. They didn't do it completely on the nose, but they managed to capture sort of the theme and the feeling of what's been going on without you know, plunging into the specifics and making and really hitting you over the head with it. So you're predicting anomaly deniers. People are like, ah. Totally, yeah. Like, what do you mean? We can't measure it. We can't, you know, it's this elusive thing. So that wouldn't surprise me. Which, uh, you know, we've seen in Star Trek before, obviously. I was <laughs> thinking like all of a sudden, I'm like, oh yeah, in the cloud minders, they don't believe that there's a gas that can affect people, an unseen gas. I st- I mean, I agree with you that there's a lot of good pairings in this episode, but I'm still going to hold on to how I feel the heart of this episode is book with Stamets. Not just because that was so much of the action, but 
you know, both of them were dealing with guilt and with remorse and with grief in different ways. I thought it was brilliant to bring them together because we really don't see them a lot together. Never seen them together alone, I don't think. Uh, which, if you know, when we had Anthony on this podcast months ago, you know, he he kind of talked about how it was a so cool for him to get this opportunity. Yeah, and I think they did a really good job like of showing us what had happened in the past five months, which is that they didn't talk to each other. You know, you'd think that the only two people who could run the spore drive would have a conversation. And Book makes it clear that Stamets has just been avoiding him. And Stamets sort of tries to deny it and then realizes, yeah, I have. And, and over the course of their adventure is able to pinpoint the reason why and say it out loud. I do know that you don't often like when they say it out loud, but I think this did matter. Because oh, no, this was great. This was I have no I thought it was terrific. The obvious thing and what Book was thinking is, oh, he's just jealous I could use the spore drive. But it was it was deeper and more emotional and it's something I kind of hadn't considered. But it was more that Stamets felt powerless, that he couldn't save his family, that Book was required to do it. And that created the tension between them. Right. And he was able to be honest about it when he realized he could just be grateful for it and thank him. I mean, the only thing in this sort of particular aspect of their relationship that I was disappointed in was I kept, you know, it was Michael who stopped Stamets from being able to save his family. She's the one who who booted him off the ship, basically. And he makes like a little joke about it. It's kind of weird. It's an awkward moment. Um, <laughs> the, the I thought too it was soon joke. Yeah, yeah that like was... that was funny and gave us a little moment of lightness. But um, I feel like that's all we're going to get of him being angry at her. I assume that month one of month five, things were still icy between them. But it, yeah. obviously, this is another one of those things, kind of like how there's like 20 new Federation worlds that just, you know, shit happened during the five months. And but it's, this isn't something that's unbelievable that they've kind of resolved this. Oh, sure. Um, it's just I'm something glad... I, would, I would have liked to uh, have seen it because I like both characters and both actors. And I think they would have done something really good with it. But I get it if for this is the story they want to tell. And for that, they need to have moved on. What this story does when it relates to Michael, though, getting back to all your different pairings, is that book dealing with his guilt um, and grief because he's got survivor's guilt and grief over the loss of his planet and his family is, you know, Mike, if you look at episode one, it's all flipped on the side because book is demanding that he, you know, lead the mission on his ship into the anomaly. And Michael's like, you aren't really, you shouldn't be doing this. You're not in a position to do it. And it's kind of like what the president was saying to her in the first episode, which is, you know, are, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Looking at him as reckless, like she was being reckless last episode. I think, did you see that parallel at all? Yeah, I did. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't call it reckless, but I would say that it's it's almost the opposite because it's taking on more responsibility than you should because you feel like you're the only one who can do it. And in both cases, they were the people with the most advanced skill set to be able to do it. But for sure, Book was not ready to take all that on. I mean, he's having visions. He's seeing his nephew. He's seeing all this stuff. It's overwhelming to him. And that that pivotal 
point where, you know, first he wanted to send Stamets back because he thought the data had already been sent to Discovery, right? So that was his, he was, he was going to die. Buck was ready to die at that moment because it was more than, I think the grief was more than he could live with. And I think that was part of his whole um, MO in a way was like, if this gets me, fine. And then the fact that they couldn't, they were not able to send the data is very, very telling. The the key thing there and kind of the beautiful moment was he said, I'm alone. And both Stamets and Michael at different points said to him, you are not alone. We're there with you. Because Stamets was only there as a projection, but they were right. all saying, wherever you go, we're there, we're your family, which is always a theme in Star Trek. Yeah. The whole notion of family. It made him so much more than just the captain's boyfriend. You know, he's he's a part of their whole group. And I I really like the scene where she opened the private channel to him. I like the weird, cool, bubbly thing that she was in. <laughs> the the cone of silence. The cone your, of uh... silence was was a great use of future tech, I thought. Because again, it worked on all those levels. It was a cool technological improvement and it was a really amazing personal moment where she could speak to him just with An Saru's excellent advice. You know, now be the girlfriend is basically the instruction. And she did it, and it was so moving. Because that was one of the big issues in this episode that this episode was trying to get at is, can Michael be a girlfriend and a captain at the same time? Especially, I mean, there is a kind of weird thing about Book of, here he is on the ship. He's a, quote, consultant. Right. But it's kind of weird. Like, they were all at the briefing, and he just kind of wanders into the Starfleet briefing like, who let you in, you know? And Yeah, I thought that was <laughs> odd when he wandered in. And then, of course, the timing was awful, and then they continued. And, I, you know, I would have had somebody come and take him away before they said, oh, now we're going to watch your planet blow up again. You know, in that moment where Michael says, you know, Michael wants to put Detmer in charge of the mission – as Detmer should have done the worker bee in the last episode. Right. And Book is like, no, I'm going to do it whether you like it or not. And it it got me thinking like, okay, it makes sense to have a small auxiliary craft with 32nd century technology on board the Discovery. But does it really make sense to have it captained by someone who can just disregard whatever the captain of the ship says? I mean, that's, you know, in a way, you know, I hate to say this, but... Book has to follow if he's if he wants to be on the ship, he should be following her orders, you know, consultant or not. I mean, I know it's a tense situation, but you you know, so the, I thought it was interesting how this was all resolved the captain boyfriend thing, um, in general. But it does bring up the question of does it make sense to have someone outside of the chain of command on the ship? Right. Well, it brings up a lot of stuff because our previous captains, it's been a big deal that they're not connected to anyone. You know, Kirk has his wistful dreams of being able to be with someone. Picard tried having a relationship on board. It didn't work. You know, Janeway didn't feel like that was something she could do. So there, I feel like now they're saying, okay, now maybe there is a place for that to happen. Well, DS9... DS9 was different because it wasn't a ship. Right. But, but certainly Cisco, there were times where Cisco had to grapple being a commander and being a boyfriend, you know, eventually had to let Cassidy go to prison, which was not an easy call, but yes, I agree. It's an interesting dynamic. I feel like they feel like this episode kind of solved the problem. Like 
here's how we strike the work life balance between these two. And I also think that we are dealing with a new federation, a new Starfleet, and things aren't going to be as buttoned up as they were back in the day that we are used to. So the idea, like, yes, there's no way that that Picard could have had a ship (laughs) within the ship with someone who wasn't in Starfleet running it. But things are a little more makeshift these days. For sure. Yeah. So here's a technical question. How exactly, I mean, this is one of the, it worked for the story because you mentioned, you know, they got cut off, but so they couldn't send the data back through the tether or not, but somehow even after cutting the tether, Stamets's projection remained on books. That does like, like that makes zero sense unless, because it's not like his projection he was a hologram of Stamets. He was Stamets, so there had to be communication. But, you know, so we're just going to let that one go, I guess, because sure. it, it made sense for the story. But it, it worked really well in the story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some headcanon that I haven't figured out. And so maybe yep. someone in the comments will say, well, here's here's how it works because of the yada yada. I'm like, okay, fine. But in general, all of that worked. There was this interesting moment where right in the middle of the action, Stamets did start talking about grief, but it wasn't like weird in the way it was when Michael called the president in the middle of an action sequence to talk about, you know, whether the president <laughs> lied in the previous episode. It, it, it all, I feel it all worked here and it all flowed, that whole action sequence. I also think they started it off really well because you have Stamets who's really nervous to go spend all this time with Book. And he's looking right in Culber's face and everything's great. And then the thing goes on and suddenly it's book. Like it goes straight to complete awkwardness. Another big story for this episode that was kind of happening in the background was Tilly's kind of issues, basically, that she's she's got problems. But, you know, she's working through them. But it took her through the episode to kind of finally come to to Culber, who's now the ship's counselor, in addition to being a doctor, for her to admit that she's definitely dealing with something, you know, is it fear of failure, fear of loss, um, grief? Yeah, and, and I think not really knowing who she is. You know, she knows she's off, something's wrong, and she doesn't, I feel like she's always had such a strong personality and had a, a sense of who she was herself. And she's lost that. She doesn't really know her role or I think even who she is as a person is all mixed up. And I was really, I I have a special love for Tilly, but I was very moved by those scenes. And I feel like this is just the beginning for her. I like the chemistry between Tilly and Adira. And it's funny, at least I think this is what, what you said, but it is kind of replicating season one Stamets and Tilly. Mm-hmm. Right. And she at one point says, I'm Stamitzing. <laughs> Did you notice that? I know. <laughs> um, because she's kind of with that when she was kind of yelling at Adira. And then again, Culber, Culber and Saru are wonderful in this episode. They're, oh. they're all they're all like weirdly ethereal and they're just kind of drifting around the episode every once in a while they kind of drift up to someone and give them words of wisdom and then right, they drift a perfect away piece of advice and then off they go <laughs> right so culber's like you know you know that they admire you you know that 
they want to be you or whatever, you know, and it was right. just the right thing to say. I, I really liked that whole dynamic, especially because all of this is being done while they're doing all the kind of cool techno babbling, you know, with the anomaly and the algorithms and all that, which can get a little dry. So we're, we're getting nicely woven in all this Tilly and Adira stuff through the technobabble science story. Yes. And I also think when Culber said to her, you know, Adira looks up to you or wants to be you, that was a big trigger for Tilly to be like, I don't even know who I am. Like, how could someone want to be me when I don't know who I am? I thought there were so many levels of, of character development and emotion going on in this episode. It was, it was really well done. So Adira has this great episode. They go back to their quarters kind of decompressing and then boom gracious and and, and startles adira and it got me thinking you know i kind of felt bad for Adira. Like adira just needs a moment you know just yes, yes. sometimes you just need to be alone no matter how much you love someone just give them a moment and gray's like hey how you doing can't wait to get a body yeah i just those scenes just aren't really working for me and I love Adira. I love that character. I love the actor. I think I think they're very compelling. But I just, this storyline isn't working. It always feels kind of shoehorned in. We got our first big hint as to how Grey is going to be seen. Because we saw Grey's, or, or a simulation of Grey's android body. So that's the solution. They're going to go with the, essentially, the, the Picard android. And they literally say, yeah, yes. this is... I mean, it. they say the word Picard, an admiral, the 24th century, uh, Sung. So I'm glad that they didn't invent another form of resurrection that they're going to have to explain why everyone can't use. So they're going with an established form of resurrection. But it was established in a way that when we watched it on Picard, we had some thoughts that it just kind of <laughs> part of it is just sort of like hand wavy. Oh, and you'll get old. And you'll die and all of yeah. that stuff. Because I still don't understand. They say, oh, you can finally incorporate like that's a thing, which we've never experienced before. And how did he survive? And why is he different? And why can Adira see him and no one else can? And why can't all the previous hosts now incorporate? Like there's so many underexplained things about this whole storyline. Culber was saying this was kind of a fad in the 24th century or 25th century or whatever. And, but, you know, it didn't really work for anyone besides Picard, so they stopped doing it. Adira hung a lantern on it and said, oh, well, if I can be resurrected, that sounds great. You know, why don't we all get android bodies? And get rid of our moles. <laughs> and Culber had to say, well, it doesn't really work for everyone, but it will work for Grey because basically since Grey survived being put into Adira through the tall symbiote and was able to manifest as these visions that that was enough for him to believe that Grey is going to make it in this android body. There are some other pairings we haven't mentioned that I thought were really great. And one of the big ones for me was Saru and Michael. Because I feel like on this show, we haven't had a great captain and first officer relationship, really. And I think I, I kind of wanted her to ask him to be first officer rather than have him offer. But I love that 
that already they're setting up like what points of view he can offer that that will be very different from what she thinks of. So when he said, oh, we can do extra security measures, I've already thought of it. And he's the one who's giving her really great advice. And he's very calm and settling and soothing, which is also a big shift for him, which is, I think, why Tilly says he looks taller. And I think <laughs> the calling him Mr. Saru is clearly an ode to Mr. Spock and to the Spock-Kirk relationship. Even though this is a book in Stamets episode, Saru is the MVP of this episode because he's he's just always there with the right piece of advice. I love like after Bryce comes up with a solution to surf the wave out, he's like hyping up Bryce. Yep. And you know, the little moment where he puts his hand on Tilly's back. Yes. His advice to Michael early on and in the episode. Yeah. So he's perfect first officer. I do, do feel bad for Reese who kind of felt like the first officer in episode one. Like, no one at least thanked him for his service. You know? Again, that's another one that just a one sentence of explanation would have helped. But I can invent the rest of that in my head, that he wasn't promoted to first officer, but he was just the guy who takes the con. You know, there were all kinds of people taking the con in the original series, for sure. Lots of randos um, <laughs> that's true. showed up. So, I, And I do feel like we've actually never had on Discovery this great first officer Really, as someone who's showing how important that role is and what that role is. And Saru has evolved so much over all these seasons that it is the perfect job for him right now. It really is the role he was meant to have. And this is the relationship the two of them were meant to have. And she's going to listen to him. So whereas when we saw them at the very beginning of the series, they were sort of rivals and sometimes contradicting each other. I think this they've really come to this place where he knows how to be the, the counterpoint to her and help her with the areas that she's not as strong in. It does create a kind of question about where they go with all this because Saru's a captain. They introduced the idea that Saru's been offered another ship, but he decided that he was needed on the Discovery for this very important mission. And because if he's on another ship, then they'd have to build new sets for him. Um, <laughs> and more people to be around him and more uniforms. It's very yeah. expensive. But where do they go with this? Like how long can he remain as this? Cause he's essentially the acting first officer. Cause he's, you know, he's another captain and you don't put two captains on one ship, you know, except in this extraordinary circumstance. So how do they find a reason for him to stay in season five? If there is a season five, right. Or does he go off to another ship? Or at the end of season five, does he go off to another ship? I think that'll happen at the very end of the series. And I, I think they're setting up this relationship to be very important. And they're probably thinking of it as ultimately something that's iconic. That's what they're looking to create. I mean, everybody wants that, sure, when they create something. But I do think that's the point of all this. And I, I appreciate it. Like, it's such, they're a, they're a great duo who have finally come into their own after all this time so i don't think they'll they'll get rid of it that quickly i mean look that anomaly they'll figure it out and then some other galaxy threatening thing will show up there's always something threatening the galaxy even though they didn't give reese a moment they did i, I felt like there was still good bridge crew banter yeah. I still like the way Michael deals with the bridge crew and how they're throwing ideas out there bryce kind of had his hero moment but you know, Detmer and Owo had moments as well. 
Did you notice Oo fell hard on that second one and had a mouthful of blood? Yeah. I mean, they had to sell the notion that if they didn't move the ship, they were all going to die. Right. Her moment of pain was the thing that sold it, I feel. Like, yeah. oh man, she looks like she's in bad shape. Um, which is better than someone saying, you know, hull integrity is at 27%. Right. And she didn't say anything about it. She just got up and back to work. Well, she's a pro. What are you going to, yep. you know? I know, she's great. But of course, I mean, people have noticed this on the show, but it is kind of ridiculous, the kind of the flames and the sparks and the rocks, always with the rocks. Like, where are all (laughs) these rocks coming from on these, the way these sets just fall apart every week? It's just, it's like, are they going to do this every episode? I mean, I like that. I mean, when the anomaly hit was great. Like how, and I love the time where Tilly Tilly runs onto the bridge to say, Oh, it's happening. Right. And then it happens like right away yep. where everyone just starts floating. Why didn't she just beam to the bridge? Because I noticed earlier. Stamets beams to the bridge, right? He just goes and then he's there. Do people just stop walking now? Well, that's what I was wondering. That's the whole thing about these personal transporters is that it does beg the, those questions. Like, do they, how often do they use it? And is it a hard, is there a problem with overusing it? And how are you going to get any exercise? And I mean, th- so you're that. sitting on the couch, you want to get a beer, you beam to the fridge. Right. You grab it's like the Homer beer, Simpson's you- dream with the toilet and the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I thought that the, the wire work where everyone's floating was. That looked great. That actually brings up uh, some, something that we haven't talked about at all, which I think a lot of people are going to think is a big deal in this episode. Can you guess what I'm going to talk about? Zora? Exactly. Yeah. That was a really, I mean, I we knew, you know, it's funny because last week we talked about how they are at some point ultimately heading towards Calypso. And this confirmed it. We've kind of had confirmed, they're constantly reconfirming it. And this was the next big step. I'm yeah. glad they stopped calling it the sphere data. I always kind of hated that. <laughs> But I liked Michael saying that the computer chose to be called Zora. That essentially, the computer is self-identifying. The yep. computer's like, I'm, I'm no longer a computer. I'm a Zora. And, and Saru's like, okay. Even though, like, that's very weird. I mean, that is just <laughs> incredibly weird for a ship's computer to just decide what you're going to call it. Like, you should be taking a moment. But he's like, yeah, sure. That makes that fits. Right. I guess because he, he dealt with Zora a bit in season three. Right. He was getting advice. Yeah. And he was calling it the sphere data. Um, but that was when the it would kind of come in and out. Whereas now Zora is in charge. And, and Michael uh, talked to Zora on the bridge. So I guess they all just... Zora is essentially Alexa now. Yeah, right? no, I was going to say. And Michael seems to have sort of a relationship with Zora because I think at one point she just said Zora and then Zora answered the question that wasn't asked. I mean there's so many interesting questions this brings up of you know how self-aware is Zora does Zora you know will will Zora make decisions without them like why didn't Zora when the ship was about to be destroyed why it's like you almost feel like would Zora ever just step in and say I'm pulling us out could Zora ever disagree with Michael? You know, there's all sorts of ways this could go, but I'm very excited. Annabelle Wallace is back voicing Zora. I feel a little bad for Julianne Grossman because I guess she's out of a job now, now that 
the computers, essentially, Zora. Right. Although in Vegas last summer, she hinted that she's going to be doing some different role. Oh, yeah. Maybe, so maybe she's back on Strange New Worlds or something. So who knows? Right. So, because I thought she did a good job, but Zora is, is a whole different ball game. So yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. There was another sort of unique tech thing. So we had, you know, our, our cone of silence and we have Zora. And we also apparently like Michael now has a holodeck in her ready room. Uh, Saru made a little note is, oh, you yeah. in, in, installed hollow. So they aren't everywhere. But I do like this idea that you could essentially turn any room into a holodeck like does the ship even have holodecks does it need them that's, because yeah that's what i was wondering is can it be anywhere does it matter well but she wasn't moving <laughs> so i feel like like because if she just started wanting to walk around she is going to run into things in her room <laughs> so I, I i get the sense that this is more you know you could create a nice vista and stand there but uh you probably shouldn't walk around right but it was pretty cool. And obviously another fantastic use of the new AR wall. Oh, yeah. It looked terrific. There is um, last week's The Ready Room, by the way. If you had a chance to watch it, which is the YouTube after show, had a nice little package on the AR wall and how it's kind of a game changer for the show um, and showed you a lot of behind the scenes shots of them using it. And yeah, it's it's just been a huge benefit for the show, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Although I have another weird technical thing. So okay. they, they show up and they can't see the anomaly. So, you know, they put on the polarizing spectrographic filter. Yes. But at the end of the episode, they zoom out from the discovery and you can still see it. Yep. Oops. Or <laughs> <laughs> it was a great shot, though, because it just showed you how crazy big this thing is and how it looks like an eye and it's really ominous. But... I don't know why they created the thing at the beginning to make it feel like it's only visible through these special filters because through the whole season, they're going to want, is it invisible or not? Is the question mark. Cause they, in this episode, they, the answer was yes. And yes, it's both invisible and not invisible. Right. To the naked eye. That is, we will have to sort that one out in episode three, perhaps. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully there's some sort of explanation. We're now in the nitpicking territory. Is there anything left for us to talk about uh, with this episode? I did think there was a funny moment where, you know, Burnham has asked Culber to be on the bridge while all this stuff is going on. And so when she's trying to figure out what's going on with Book and she asks Culber, you know, is this what's going on with him is can I trust him? Culber says a very Deanna Troy like thing. Because he says, um, it's impossible to tell if it's stress or emotional instability. And I was like, oh, that's Troy, who was always like, I sense some deception, but I don't know about what. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought that, you know, it was like an important moment. But still, I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it was like having a counselor on the bridge all the time. There was a lot of nice, light, funny moments, often with Tilly. Uh, but even some of the awkward stuff with Book and Stamets a couple times. And, uh, you know, I, I think because, as you know, I like lightness in my episodes. And I thought this one was better at it than uh, the series premiere, which had kind of a lot of other work to do and didn't get enough time for these light moments. 
I thought it was a really nice balance of doing a lot of light moments and a lot of very, very heavy, complicated, layered moments. Season's off to a great start. Yeah. We're two episodes in, um, so there's a, there's a, a lot more to go, but I'm excited. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited to see the next one. So let's just pivot to our bits of the week. Sure. Mine is just kind of a reminder um, that this week is the 25th anniversary of Star Trek First Contact, which is one of my favorite Star Trek movies. Yeah, it's terrific. We did a little kind of let's celebrate Star Trek, the 25th anniversary of First Contact article on the site. We had all these videos. I, I found junket videos from 1996 with everyone and they're uncut, the kind of raw videos. So you can see them like putting on mics and stuff like that. So it's all good stuff. Yeah. There's some new interviews in there from Ron Moore talking about the Borg Queen. Something he mentioned about the Borg Queen, which makes sense is he always saw the Borg Queen as just the queen of the hive, not the queen of all of the Borg, even though that's kind of what she's become. But in right, a way, which his... answers, which helps us with like the Voyager Borg Queen, like all of these different. We've had a couple of Borg Queens. So it makes yeah. more sense now if you think about it. And the Queen's coming back or another Queen in right. Picard season two. There's a new coffee table book coming out, which won't be until next year for First Contact Day. So it's some, you know, so check out the article for all these little bits. So happy 25th anniversary. If you want to go real crazy, uh, you could listen to the audio commentary of Star Trek First Contact with myself and Damon Lindelof on the Blu-rays. That is so cool. I think, didn't we listen to a bit of that when we were all in Vegas together? Yeah, it was weird. It was running in the background <laughs> while we were all drinking and stuff and I'd hear my own voice. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'm going to, now I now I know one of the things I'm going to do over Thanksgiving weekend, for sure. <laughs> What's your bit of the week? Mine is, um, you know, in all these Star Trek groups on Facebook, Delta Flyers and different groups, you meet all kinds of people. So there's a Star Trek fan and artist named Kristen Brandt who posted this really cool um, Starbucks. She works at Starbucks also. Um, and she made this custom Starbucks cup. And I said, I wanted one. And she was like, oh, I'll make you one and I'll sell it to you. So she made, I'm going to, I posted it on Instagram. So I'll link to that, but it's a custom Starbucks cup with my name on it. And then the famous Janeway quote, of course, that has having to do with coffee, which is coffee, the finest organic suspension ever devised. And it's so funny because last night I just happened to watch that episode where she says it. Um, so <laughs> It's Hunters is the episode where she says it. But Kristen has an Etsy shop and she does all kinds of custom pop culture stuff. So lots of Star Trek stuff for the office. So I think I want everyone to see, first of all, this beautiful cup that I have. And then she can take commissions. The holidays are coming. Maybe you want to see what she has or see if you can get something from her. But she's talented and fun and a Star Trek fan. And I now I can combine my favorite things, Star Trek and coffee. So... That's it for another All Access Star Trek. We want to wish everyone out there in the USA a happy Thanksgiving weekend. And, you know, happy Thanksgiving to everybody, because we're thankful for you, whether you're in the States or not. Indeed. And we'll be back next Friday, because if it's Friday, it's All Access Star Trek. See you then. <laughs>